All right, so we are in the 11th chapter of Revelation. Just a bit of a, a recap. Chapter 10 and chapter 11 go hand in hand. They are this interlude between the 6th and 7th trumpets. And just like we saw an interlude between the 6th and 7th seal, both dealing with the sealing of the church, the protection of God's people, we also see that same thing here with this interlude. We saw two pictures of the church in chapter 7. We saw the sealed 144,000, and we saw the victorious innumerable multitude. And just as we had two pictures of the church in the first interlude, we have two pictures of the church in the second interlude. A picture of the measured temple, protected, secure, yet externally the outer courts are left to be trampled. That is, it's spiritually protected, sealed by God, but it is still physically vulnerable to persecution and attack. And the second picture of it is the two witnesses. And that's, that's what we're going to look at tonight as we continue to get this picture of Revelation 11, which gives us a picture of the church as spiritually protected, though externally persecuted. That's who we are in this present age. Spiritually protected, externally persecuted. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. These are these these. Uh, interesting paradigms that we exist as the already but not yet kingdom people of God. We are already in the kingdom. We already are His people. Yet we long and look for the consummation of that kingdom when all evil and wickedness will be rooted out. So here we see these two pictures of the people of God in Revelation 11. The temple is a picture of the worshiping people of God. And now as we turn our attention to verses 3 through the end of the chapter, we turn to the fact that the church is also the witnessing people of God. We are the worshiping people of God and the witnessing people of God. Now I'm going to read through the whole section of the two witnesses, but we're just going to be examining, exegeting the first two verses, verse 3 and 4 of the two witnesses. And so Revelation 11, beginning in verse 3 uh, through verse 14. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. And make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Alright, so like I said, one of the most debated sections really in the entire book, which is hard to say because there's really not a verse in Revelation that isn't debated by somebody. But of all the sections, Revelation 11, what makes it so interesting is it's one of those points where the divergence 
of interpretation becomes the most clear. Who are these two witnesses? There is a camp of dispensationalism which takes everything in the book of Revelation primarily as literally. Now, I hate that term literally because nobody literally gets it right. It's like, well, we, we take everything literally except when we're told not to. In other words, we're going to be as wood-headed about it as we can be, except unless it says the trees are clapping, then we know that means it's symbolic. It's like, no, we need to understand the Bible the way the Bible interprets itself. We need to understand by the Bible on the basis of the genres that it's given. Revelation is an apocalyptic work. And apocalyptic works, Daniel, Ezekiel, Revelation, parts of Jeremiah, all of these are meant to be understood symbolically. Types, shadows, finding their fulfillment in Christ Jesus. So some have proposed that these are going to be a reincarnation of Elijah and Moses. There are some who've argued that the two witnesses were referring to Peter and Paul, one the apostle of the circumcision, the apostle of the uncircumcision. There have been some who argue the preterist view that these refer to two Jewish prophets that died in 68 AD. There are some who argue that these refer to the two testaments of Scripture, the Old and the New Testament. And, and I would argue that as, as much as those are fanciful, and, 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 I've, and I've heard lots of them, I think that they are both, all of them are, are wrong. I believe that the two witnesses represent the whole community of faith, that is the church, whose primary function is to be a prophetic witness to the world, just as John the Baptist was not a literal reappearance of Elijah, but came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Likewise, these witnesses are given the authority through the Spirit of God to prophesy in the way that Moses and Elijah did. And, and we'll, I'll, I'll try to flesh that out, how Scripture clearly details that that is a ministry of the church as a whole, not just to specific individuals. So tonight we're going to be looking at two things particularly as we look at verse 3 and 4. Tonight we're just going to look at the identity of the two witnesses and the time frame of these two witnesses. The identity of them and the time frame, the 1260 years. What does that mean? What time frame is that? And, and hopefully what we want to do as we always do is we want to let Scripture interpret Scripture. What does the Bible help us interpret these things? We want to go to simpler passages to help us understand the more difficult ones. That's a good Bible practice. When you go to a difficult Bible practice, go to simpler texts which help outline what it means. So let's begin. Verse 3. I will grant authority to my two witnesses. Now that word authority is the Greek word exousia. It means power. Power, authority. I will give my authority to these two witnesses. Now, in Scripture, is there any time in simpler texts, like the Gospel accounts, where there are accounts of Christ giving His church authority to speak on His behalf? How about the Great Commission? All authority on heaven and earth have been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And you may say, well, he has the authority, but does he give the church authority? Does he give the church power to preach? Well, what happened at Pentecost? He filled his church with the Holy Spirit. And why did he do that? Behold, wait, I will send my spirit to empower you as my witnesses into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to all the ends of the earth. 
And so Christ's authority and power is given and demonstrated through His body, the church. We, we receive the authority and the power through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit itself in us is the evident victory of Christ's resurrection. Like, I, that is the important reality of the so what of the resurrection. The so what of the resurrection is that Christ's victory now lives in you through the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. That power exists in you as the body of Christ. And then the second aspect of authority that we have as the church is we have His Word. We have the Word of God. So there's no authority this morning or this evening in anything I say to you outside of the Word of God. This is where the authority lies. And so what this is saying here is that Christ is granting authority to His church, who is these two witnesses. Now, to help you see that these two witnesses are referring to the church, I want us to look at some aspects of Scripture of why the church might possibly be referred to as two witnesses. The first aspect of this is in biblical teaching, how could a testimony be authorized and, and, and verified. It had to be on the basis of how many? Two. Two or three witnesses. Two or three witnesses. That's Deuteronomy 19.15. That is John chapter 8, verse 17. And then we get this interesting aspect in the Gospel accounts where Jesus calls the 70. He gives them authority to trample serpents, we're told, to heal, to proclaim the gospel, and he sends them out in how many? By twos. Two by two. Why? So that the witness they proclaimed could be established as an authenticated, authorized witness of God. And so the reason why the picture of the church here is being symbolized as two witnesses is because it's declaring that in the messianic age, in the interadvental age, in this present evil age, the church is Christ's authorized witness. We are the authorized witness. Sent by twos. We are His faithful witness. It's amazing. We see this concept of two being central to the story of the Gospels. How many angels announced Christ's resurrections in Luke's account? Two angels were there to announce, He is not here, He's risen. How many angels were there on the mount when Jesus ascended into heaven to say, He's not here, but that's exactly how He's going to come back. There were how many? Two angels. Why? Because everything is verified and authenticated on the basis of two witnesses. The church being established as the two witnesses of God is simply saying that we are His authorized witnesses in this world bearing His authority through the indwelling of the Spirit and the authority of the preached Word. That word witness there is the Greek word martyros. It's where we get martyrs from. Now, this doesn't mean they necessarily are going to be martyrs but nevertheless, this is amazing to me that this is the name that is now basically ascribed to those who have died for their faith. Martyrs. Why? Because their witness was faithful unto death. And what happens to these two witnesses in the account? They get killed. They get resurrected. They are martyros. In other words, they were faithful unto death. And how many times in Revelation have we already seen that that's exactly what the church has been called to be? Faithful unto death. That's the church at Smyrna's call, the church at Philadelphia's call. Be faithful unto death. It was Tertullian who said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. When you think, think about this, for the first 300 or so years of Christianity, we weren't a recognized religion. 
We were an illegal religion that would lead to absolute persecution, death, destruction throughout. We faced horrific, horrific torture. I mean, bodies being sewn into to animal carcasses to be fed to beasts in the Colosseum for the cheers of people. Christians being tarred to walls and set on fire in order to light garden parties for Nero. This is what they went through. And what happened to Christianity during that time? It exploded. After the Boxers Rebellion in the late 19th century in China, they kicked out all the Western missionaries. And they thought, Christianity is going to die in China. When they left there, there was an estimated around 200,000 Christians in China. They thought, surely it's going to die out. Missionaries were allowed back in and started sneaking back in in the 1950s and 60s to find 50 million Chinese Christians in the underground church. Because this is how we grow. Faithful unto death. His faithful witnesses. And when we, are his, we, when we are Christ's faithful witnesses, we're following His steps. In Revelation 1.5, Jesus is described as what? The faithful witness. Why? Because of what we just saw last week in the Passion Week. Faithful unto death. Not my will, but thine be done. He drank the cup dry for His people. And He was vindicated in what? Resurrection. And what, how are His people vindicated here in this story? Resurrection. That's your vindication. That's why you can be faithful unto death because you know that's not the end of the story. Because you know like your Lord, you're coming back. Death is just a corridor into glory. We are His witnesses. Acts 1.8 You will be My witnesses. 1 Peter 2.9 right? You are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, called out of darkness into His marvelous light to do what? To proclaim His excellencies. Church, we are His witnesses. We are God's authorized witness bearing His authority through the indwelt Spirit proclaiming the perfect Word of God. And just in case you aren't sure that these witnesses aren't on their own, because these witnesses seem amazing. They have prophetic gifts, a prophetic ability to to speak judgment and to, to, to proclaim. But brothers and sisters, I want you to know today, the prophetic gift that these two witnesses hold is a prophetic gift given to the entire church by the outpoured Spirit. This is what Pentecost was all about. Listen to Joel chapter 2 and then listen to what Peter says in Acts 2. Joel chapter 2 verse 28 through 32. This is the picture of when, when the Messiah assumes His throne, this is what would happen to His people. Joel chapter 2 verse 28 through 32. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days I will pour out My Spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great day and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So this is Joel prophesying of what would happen when the Messiah assumed His throne, ushering in a day of salvation. Which Psalm 118 says, This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. What day was it talking about? It was talking about the day the Messiah reigned, which would be a day of of salvation. And so we know the story, right? Christ is ascended. Ten days later on the day of Pentecost, the, the Spirit pours out on the 120 disciples there. Everyone thinks these guys are drunk. They're out of their mind. They're speaking in known languages because everyone else is hearing them in their language. And so, what's going on here? 
And what does Peter say? Acts chapter 2, verse 16 through 21. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth, blood and vapor of fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to the blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. So Pentecost happens. Everyone's trying to figure out what in the world is going on. And what does Peter say? Verbatim, this is what Joel said would happen. What was happening? What was the main gift that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit gave to the church? It was to be God's prophetic witness to the world. And what was the role of the prophets in the Old Testament? See, this is where a lot of times we kind of get things messed up. We often think of prophets in only one way. They were able to foretell the future. That's not the primary function of the prophets in the Old Covenant. There's actually only a few examples of where that happens. The primary function of the Old Testament prophets were to be the covenant prosecutors of God's people. You have broken the covenant of God. Repent and come back. That's the primary purpose. You have went against, you've sinned against God. Turn back lest you face the curses of being a covenant breaker. That's their primary message. And what is our prophetic witness today? You are at enmity with God. You have broken His law. You are a sinner justly condemned by a holy God. But turn to Jesus and you will be saved. Repent and believe and you will have eternal life. That's our message. That is the prophetic gift we've been given as a church. And every single person in this room who has been born again and dwelled by the Holy Spirit, that's your number one calling. is to be a prophetic witness of God. Calling people to their Creator. By the only means possible, the Savior Jesus Christ. That's our message. We, we turn this prophetic gift into some weird, wacky stuff. And it's one simple purpose. We've been given the Spirit of God, the unique... No, not now, it's Satan. The unique outpouring of the Spirit that happened at the Pentecost was not that the Holy Spirit had never worked in the history of redemption. We know that that's not the case. We can go to the Old, the Old Testament and how the Spirit was removed from Saul and things like that. We, God's Spirit was at work tons in the Old Testament. It's how the prophets got their messages. The outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost was not like, oh, the Holy Spirit's never been here before and He just pops onto the scene. No, it was a unique moment of redemptive history where the outpouring of the Spirit came declaring the enthronement of the Messiah and the empowering of His prophetic witness to the nations to call all people to their risen reigning King. That's our task. That's the prophetic witness we've been given as a church. That's how we as these two witnesses are given authority to proclaim to the nations. The church's message is one of evangelical witness and prophetic warning. Evangelical witness. Come, repent, and believe on Jesus Christ. But it's also prophetic warning. If you do not trust in Jesus Christ, judgment awaits you. So our witness is both one of evangelical welcome, come all you who are weary and burdened, and Jesus will give you rest. And it's also one of prophetic warning. Evangelical welcome, prophetic warning. That's our message as a church. It says that they are clothed in sackcloth. The clothing here, this is a picture of, 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 of clothing that is accompanied by mourning in light of impending judgment. The, 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 the idea here is, is that the church... It, it's, its message 
comes from a heart cry longing for people to be saved. An absolute brokenness over the judgment that people will face because they won't receive Jesus. Like, I don't don't know about you guys, but there are few things in my life more painful than to see someone dying in sin and enslaved to sin and knowing the remedy and telling them the remedy and pleading with them the remedy and them refusing to take it. It is heart-wrenching. And the picture here of the prophetic witness of the church is the same picture of Jeremiah in Lamentations. Jeremiah weeping over Jerusalem. Weeping going, why wouldn't you come? Why wouldn't you repent? Because he knows at this point when Lamentations is written, he knows that exile is going to happen. He knows that Babylon is going to come and it's going to crush him. He knows that there's no turning back at this point. And it's devastating to him. Jesus, when He's proclaiming over Jerusalem on that final Passion Week, says He weeps over the city. Oh, how I'd long to gather you like a mother seeks to gather her chicks under her wing. He wept. He mourned over it. The reality of judgment is not something we gloat in. It's something that should stir in you a heart cry to say, please come to Christ. There's no other way. And it's what unsettles you from being idle while the world is dying and saying, hey, as long as I do my part in the church, as long as there, I'm there on Sunday, who cares what the world happens? Why, why polish brash on a sinking ship? It's all going to hell anyways. Why worry about it? Because you should have a burden on your soul. It says people are going to hell. And I don't wish that on nobody. And I've been given the message of salvation. Church, you've been given the message of salvation. How can you not preach? How can you not tell people? How can you sit idly by because you're afraid? Well, they may not like me anymore. I don't care. I don't care. Because I'm going to speak the truth with love. I'm not going to be damning. I'm not going to be cruel. But I'm going to be honest. And that's what we're called to be. Our posture is open and welcoming. But our position is unchanging. This is where we stand. And I love you too much not to to shift on that. And that's the problem with this church movement today of this, this overwhelming movement of tolerance that is nothing more than hatred. It's not love. It's not love to shift on standards. It's not love for me to see my children doing wrong and say, well, I'm just glad they're happy. It's not love. It's not love at all. We have been given a prophetic warning. We, as the church, are humble and low. We are those who are poor in spirit. Go read the Beatitudes sometime. Like, that's Christ's kingdom ethic to His people. Blessed are those who who mourn. Those who are poor in spirit. What creates that? It's this burden for the lost. A burden for a dying world while we know we have the message of salvation. And so we should be those who are weeping over the reality and it should stir in us a holy hunger to go after those who are perishing. It says that they are the two olive trees. Now this comes directly out of Zechariah chapter 4. And you're welcome to turn with me there. But Zechariah chapter 4, another interesting apocalyptic uh, prophetic work Zechariah's. Especially difficult in many places to read, but Zechariah 4, 
I'll read verses uh, 1 through 13 where this, where this picture comes from both of the olive branches as well as the um, lampstands. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of a sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold with a bowl on top of it, and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. Now let's stop right there. What was another way that the churches have been described in Revelation already? Seven lampstands, right? So seven lampstands and then another picture of two olive trees. In other words, what Zechariah is seeing here is actually a future picture of what's going to be further revealed in the Revelation. Why? Remember, what is the purpose of Revelation? Unveiling Old Covenant prophecy in light of King Jesus. Right? So keep moving here. We'll see. It says... And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by my might, nor by power, but my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain, and shall bring forth the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. I would argue that that's a picture of the triumphal entry of Jesus. The top stone who is going to be rejected. Grace, grace to it. Hosanna, ho, Hosanna. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven eyes are the eyes of the Lord. We've already seen Jesus described with those. Which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive tree which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? A picture of anointing. He said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Well, that's interesting because that's really not an answer. Of course there are two ones. What are you talking about? Who are these two anointed ones? It's these two witnesses. It's the picture of the church. And specifically, in the immediate context, because remember, Old Testament prophecy has ultimately an immediate and also long-term fulfillment. There's always an immediate realization of what this prophecy is talking about, but there's also a messianic fulfillment in how it's revealed in Jesus. So the immediate picture of these olive trees and these are the two anointed ones in this picture who was Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, who was the governor over the reestablished Israel. These were those who were ruling at the time when the second temple was being constructed. Now, what's interesting here is about these two witnesses is they represent Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the kingly governor. And so this tells us something about the nature of this two witness. These two witnesses have both a priestly function and a kingly function. The priestly function of the church is what? Worship and sacrifice. Now what sacrifices do we offer as new covenant people of God? We're the sacrifice. Present yourself a living sacrifice. Why? Because the last dying sacrifice died on Golgotha. Once and for all, never to be done again. So from now on and forever, there's only bloodless sacrifices. Presenting ourselves as living sacrifices. So that's the church's worshiping function. Interesting, because that's what the first picture of the temple was about. And the second function is a kingly function, a dominion function. And what is the church's uh, a function under the kingship of Jesus? It's to advance his kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel. Remember, think of the Bible as a story of two Adams. The first Adam and the last Adam. What was the first Adam's covenant responsibility? To multiply and to have dominion over the earth. 
right? Keep the garden, multiply, have dominion over the earth. Priestly function, kingly function, prophetic function. He failed. We all know the first Adam failed. Thanks, Adam. We failed. But then the last Adam came. The last Adam, Jesus. This is why it's so important to see these connections. Whereas the first Adam failed in his covenant plan with God, the last Adam perfectly fulfilled it in the garden. One fell in the garden, and in the garden of Gethsemane, the last Adam perfected. Faithful. Failure, faithful. And this last Adam has been enthroned to kingship through the resurrection and the ascension where he is now sitting at the right hand of the Father, a picture of dominion and authority. But the question is, is well, how is this king going to advance and spread his, his dominion to spread his, uh, his progeny over the world? How is he going to multiply offspring of God? And the answer is through the gospel proclamation of his people. Who are his what? Body. You're the king's body. And he uses you as his hands and feet to advance his kingdom into all nations and people groups. The last Adam is conquering and building his kingdom so that the glory of the Lord is proclaimed at every corner of the globe. Like the first Adam should have done. And so we have this kingdom advancement, which is the whole story of the book of Acts. Kingdom advancement through gospel proclamation. The book of Acts is nothing more than the book of Joshua in the New Testament. It is a picture of kingdom conquest and kingdom settlement. We conquest into an unreached people groups and we settle there by planting a church. We move on, conquest, settle with a new church. That's the way biblical church planning is supposed to be done. Not just keep building on top of each other. And we see this fact that the church is both has a kingly, a dominion, and a priestly function. Revelation 5.10, it says this about the church. It's worshiping Jesus and it says, And you have made them, those he's bought by his blood, a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Priestly, kingly functions. That's what we've been called as, as the church of Jesus Christ, as his faithful witnesses. Just as the priest and king there were the Spirit's key means for the establishment of the second temple against opposition, so here two witnesses are likewise empowered by the Spirit of God to perform the same role in relation to the temple of 11, 1 and 2. As with the temple in Zechariah 4, the spiritual temple of God appears insignificant, especially because it's invisible. And its destiny seems questionable. Why? Because it's opposed by worldly powers until its Lord's return. So, in other words, though we are doing all of these things, it often goes unnoticed by the world, and it's often attacked by the world. It says that they are the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of earth. We saw that there in, in Zechariah 4.14. We are the lampstands. Two lampstands. Now, what's the purpose of the lampstand? Right? It gives off light. It gives witness. It's in the Holy of Holies, the menorah, the seven candles were the only light that would allow the priest to actually see what was happening in the Holy of Holies. In other words, they couldn't behold the place of God without the light of the lamps. And the same is true for the world without the church. How can the world know of the presence and place of God through the witness and the light of the church? We proclaim to them that way. Revelation 1.20 literally refers to the church, churches as the seven lampstands. These seven lampstands are the seven churches which those first seven letters were all written to. What's fascinating about the fact here that there's two lampstands is when we looked at those seven churches at the beginning of Revelation, how many of them were faithful and had no rebuke? Two of them. The church at Smyrna, 
and the church of Philadelphia were the only lampstands that had no rebuke against them. Now, does that mean that only two-sevenths of the church is going to be faithful? No. What that's saying is, is that we learn from the failures of those who needed rebuke, and we focus on the two that were faithful unto death, Smyrna and Philadelphia. These two faithful lampstands. And what's the, what was so amazing about those two churches? Both of them were under immense persecution. But what did Jesus praise them for? Yet you have not denied me. And you will receive a crown for it. You will be a pillar in my temple. Those are the promises he gives to those faithful lampstands. The witnesses are called lampstands because their word is to burn like a lamp. Just as Elijah's word burned like a lamp. And as John, the Baptist word, John 5.35 says, was a lamp that was burning and was shining. Notice that. John 5.35 says that John's preaching was a lamp that was both burning and shining. And what's amazing about the testimony of these two witnesses? It's a light. It shows the way. But it also burns the conscience. It burns and it pierces the sinner's heart. That's why they hated John. That's why they hate all of the prophets. The beast will make war against them. If you go down to verse 7, it says the beast will make war against them. Now what's amazing, and this is why it's important to understand the fact that this is the church as a whole. And I'll make that clear in a moment. But remember, one of the key aspects of the book of Revelation is the reality of counterfeits. God has His faithful, and the dragon, Satan, has His counterfeits. Christ has His faithful two witnesses, the church. And Satan has His wicked two witnesses, the beast and the false prophet. God's perfect number, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then there's the false trinity, the counterfeit trinity, dragon, beast, false prophet. God's perfect number of seven, the the number of the trinity, seven, 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 perfect, holy, the counterfeit, satanic number, six, six, six. It's counterfeits. That's what's happening here. And just as Satan is his counterfeit witness to try to pull the world away, the church is Christ's faithful witness to draw them to truth. And these two witnesses collide. And that's what creates the persecution. That's what creates the destruction. That's what creates martyrs. Is because you have two witnesses in the world competing. And that's why when the church, and the, the picture of the church as the 144,000 being sealed, that picture of a military census is absolutely right. Because why? Church, we're enrolled in a battle. You are in real spiritual warfare. Why? Because the two witnesses of the world are in conflict. Praise be to God, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. There is no duality here. There isn't like yin and yang where sometimes the devil wins and God wins a little bit back. No. Jesus always wins. He always wins. And the only ground he gives to the devil is exactly what he gave him to have. Nothing less, nothing more. But I want you to notice here, it says the beast will make war against these two witnesses. But notice in the book of Revelation, which is a a book of parallel progressivism, so progressive parallelism, excuse me, that's continually telling the same story, but progressing in its intensity throughout. But notice a very similar story in Revelation 13. Revelation 13, verse 7. This is referring to the beast. I'll I'll begin in verse 5. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. 1260 days, 42 months. See the, the picture here. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name that is those who dwell in heaven. So stop. Right here you see the two pictures of witnesses. 
Faithful witness the church, wicked witness the demon. Blaspheming God, faithfully proclaiming God. And it says this, verse 7. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. What happens at the end of this text? The witnesses are crushed. The nations praise. So, in Revelation 13, it's the whole church being crushed. In Revelation 2, it's just two people? No, it's the same story. It's the same picture from a different angle. Parallel, progress, throughout. So here we see this picture of who are the two witnesses. The two witnesses are God's prophetic witness facing persecution in this fallen world. That's who it is. That's who these two witnesses are. It is God's faithful prophetic witness, the church, living in a world of persecution and opposition. I want to kind of close here by looking at the time frame. It says they will prophesy for 1260 days. Now, like I said, there are some who read this literally as exactly three and a half years. It's going to be exactly three and a half years. The problem is, is if we read that literally throughout, we just get a bunch of three and a half years and another three and a half years and another three and a half years instead of seeing it as clearly referring all to the same period of time. There's been multiple references to time in Revelation. And every time we've come across them, we've seen that they represent something symbolic, not literal timing. I could make us do it, but I'm not going to. So I just gave you the references. You're more than welcome to trace through this tonight. But there's times where we see things an hour. They were persecuted for an hour. The judgment lasted for an hour. God's wrath was poured out for an hour. What does that mean in symbolic language? It just means... For a short time. It didn't last long. It was quick. It was done. It was over with. It was fast. The Lord will return at an hour you do not know. Right? It's, it's quick. It's sudden. It's, 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 it's fast. It happens out of nowhere. And then we saw the picture of five months with those demon, demonic hordes who are going to persecute for, for five months. And the picture there is a long time, a lengthier time, but, but not something that is significant, lasting forever for, for many years, but something which is, is going to be medium in its, in its, uh, in its last, in its, in, its, in its temporality. The picture of three and a half days, which is directly tied to Daniel chapter 9, which next week, like I said, God, I just hope we can do this in three parts. I think it's going to, or two parts, but I think it's going to be three. But next week, we're pretty much going to do an entire exposition of Daniel chapter 9. And what does these three and a half days come from? But here, we see it, right? They were, they were killed and they, they lay dead for three and a half days. Right? For three and a half days, the people gazed and, and declared, is that a literal three and a half days? And, and I don't think it is. I just think it means for a, a short period of time. And, and I would argue that actually refers to the very end, the closing of the age before Christ returns. And I'll, and I'll make that argument more clear next week. But then we see this number of 42 months. 42 months, 1260 days, times, times, time and a half. All of those equal the same thing. 42 months equals three and a half years. 1260 days, roughly three and a half years. Time, times, three, and a half a time is three and a half years. So anytime you see this, it's all referring to the same time period. So how many months were the, was the outer courts of the temple trampled? 42 months. How long is the witness of the two witnesses? 1260 days. Now, my argument here is that this refers to the present age of the church in its wilderness experience. Right? The church is in its wilderness experience. We have been called out of slavery, out of Egypt, out of bondage. But are we in the promised land yet? Sorry, brothers and sisters, this is not it. Thank God. Now, spiritually, are we in the promised land? Yes, we have been seated with the Lord in heavenly places. We are His. 
But we long for the day when the fullness of our glorified bodies and spirits are in the eternal promised land, the new heavens and new earth with King Jesus, with no more pain, no more death, no more sorrow, no more sin. That's the promised land we're looking for. We're not there yet. So we are in our wilderness journey. And the reason why this 42 months, 1260 days, times, time and a half, is referring to the church's age, the church age when Christ is advancing His kingdom in preparation for His coming is because when we look to the Old Testament, these, this number of months was symbolic of exile in the wilderness. For instance, in Numbers chapter 33, verses 5 through 49, it's giving a testimony of Israel's time in the wilderness. And we read about that throughout Israel's entire period of the wilderness. They were encamped 42 months. So there were 42 encampments of Israel. Usually referring to one encampment per year. Because there's probably two years for the original exile out till the time of Sinai, and then 40 years after they came down and worshipped the golden calf. So two years to Sinai, then another 40 years of, of Exodus afterwards. So 42 encampments marching the 42 years they spent in the wilderness. What's also interesting is Elijah, who these prophets, this prophetic witness, bears the power and the spirit of Elijah... How long was Elijah in exile in the wilderness? Three and a half years. Three and a half years. And I'll just give you that example. So 1 Kings 17, we read of his exile, and then we're going to read how the New Testament tells us and gives us clarity here. 1 Kings 17, 1-7, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishba and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself from the brook Cherith, which is the east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, and that is east of Jordan. And then ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Now, Luke chapter 4, verse 24 through 25. This is what Jesus says. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Sorry, church in the world. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. So for 1260 days, for 42 months, for times, times and a half, three and a half years, Elijah was in the wilderness and he was given power through the word to bring judgment onto the world, onto the unbelievers. Listen to what James says about it. James 5, 17-18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, what's fascinating about that is look at verse 6 of chapter 11 referring to the power of these two witnesses. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have powers over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So you see two aspects here. You see Elijah and you see Moses. The church is given. But the question you've got to ask today, because James just said, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Was Moses a man like our nature? Yeah. So, how did Moses call down, by what power did Moses call down the plagues? Spirit of God. Spirit of God working through the Word of God. How did Elijah dry up the rain, or dry up the sky from the rain? 
Spirit of God working through the Word of God. And how does the church bring salvation to anybody? The Spirit of God working through the Word of God. And you may say, well, how is it, how, how is it that the church brings judgment onto the world? Through its prayers. Remember back to the fifth seal? How long, O Lord, shall you bring vindication to our name? And what does the Lord do? Wait. Wait for a little while longer. And then what does He do in the sixth and seventh seal? He brings judgment in answer to the prayers of His people. And what is that whole point of using Elijah as an example in James 5? James saying, pray like Elijah did. Pray like Elijah did in the wilderness because you're in the wilderness, church. And one other point to make this clear that this is indeed the church age, the wilderness age of the church as we have the prophetic witness like Elijah and Moses did. Chapter 12, Revelation 12, verse 6. Here, actually I'll begin in verse 5. She gave birth to a male child one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to His throne. Who's that? Who's that child? Jesus. Jesus, the one to rule, caught up to God. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for how many? 1260 days. And jump over here real fast to verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to a place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Same period. 1260, 42 months, time, times, time and a half. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. How did the wicked die at the end of Revelation 11? The earth swallows them up. How was Elijah cared for in the wilderness? The earth cared for it. Ravens in the sky. The brook. God is using the story of Elijah. He's using the story of Moses to tell his church, to tell his people, you will face persecution just like Moses did, just like Elijah did. Why was Elijah in the wilderness? Because Jezebel and Ahab. Because the world had come against him. And what's the picture of the great city? What will she be called? Jezebel in Revelation. Don't miss these connections. This language is meant to help all of the people there. All of those first century readers who would have been reading this under the immense persecution of Domitian, who would have known the story of Elijah, known the story of Moses, known of the persecution they faced, and yet knew the outcome. We may be in the wilderness, but we are not forgotten. We may be persecuted, but we are spiritually protected. We may be killed, yet we live. Brothers and sisters, who are the two witnesses? The two witnesses represent the reconstituted Israel of God, the church, drawing its power from the Holy Spirit under the sovereign rule of its risen King to serve as His faithful witness, prophetically proclaiming His Word to the world, advancing His kingdom into all nations in spite of the opposition and persecution it faces until the King returns to consummate the kingdom in glory, judge all wickedness, and usher in His new creation. That's who the two witnesses are. That's the time frame. The time frame is right now, brothers and sisters. And after the 1260 years end, this 1260 year period, the time, times and a half, the 42 months, or to 1260 days, excuse me, all of that equaling the same time period. When it ends, 
what happens to the church after their victorious uh, 1260 days of preaching? They start getting crushed. And next week we will look at the prophetic ministry, the immense persecution, and the vindicating victory of these two witnesses. And what I want to argue to this is this. What, what we're going to see to kind of give you a foreshadow is that during the church age, Though the church is faced by persecution and opposition, it's absolutely victorious and triumphal in its ministry. Everybody who Jesus is going to save is going to get saved. That's not going to get thwarted. But just prior to His second coming, He will unleash hell as a means of judgment on those abominators, those desolators they'll be called. So much so that the church will be crushed. It will have to go completely underground. That's the picture of its death in this picture. Going to go ahead and give you a foreshadow. But it will be resurrected. It will be brought to life. Why? What's the coming up? It's the return of Jesus. And us being called up to glory with Him. And beholding His sovereign, powerful judgment on all the wicked. So what does that mean for us now while we're in the 1260 days, while we're in the church age, while we're in the wilderness period? Go and preach. Why? Because until the Lord says so, it won't be stopped. The word of the Lord will not return void. Why? Because today is the day of salvation. That's why Paul could say that in 2 Corinthians 6. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. Why? Because Jesus reigns. That's why today is the day of salvation. And yes, will things progressively get more difficult? You better believe it. But does that mean that we lose? No way. Why? Because our victory is tied up into the man who's already won. To Jesus Christ, the God-man who's already victorious. So we don't lose. Even when they kill us, we win. That's going to be the story of the two witnesses. They couldn't keep Jesus down. He came out of those grave, that grave. No matter how hard they tried, you can't keep Jesus down. And the truth of the matter is, you can't keep His church down either. We are God's prophetic witness to the world. With a holy hunger burning in us to call all men to salvation. So until He returns, let's be faithful. Until He returns, let's call people to Christ. Until He returns, let's call everyone to repentance. Until He returns, let our number one picture of love to people be like, I want you to know Jesus. I will help you. I will serve you. I will wash your feet. I will give you the cup of cold water. I'll give you the shirt off my back. Amen. That's wonderful. But it must always begin with let me give you Jesus first. We'll help anybody. But never disconnect from the gospel. Our physical ministry, our benevolence ministry must always be chained to the message of the gospel. Why are we giving you this cup? Because I want you to know about Jesus, who is our cup of living water. Something that you'll never thirst again. That's how Jesus did it at the well. Brothers and sisters, we are His faithful witness. We are God's authorized witness to the world. Dwell and dwelled by His Spirit to give us power to proclaim Jesus is the way. Won't you come? Won't you believe? So brothers and sisters, I charge you with the Word of God. Go be exactly who He's called you to be. A kingdom of priests offering living sacrifices, spreading dominion over the nations through the proclamation of Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. So go be who God's called you to be. We're not a second plan. We're not a plan B. We're not a parenthesis in His plan. We're plan A. Plan A to advance His kingdom into all people groups. So go do it. Be charged with a holy hunger because this city is perishing. This world is perishing. And Jesus is the remedy. So call Him. We're His faithful witnesses in this faithful wilderness age. 
And though we are in exile, we are not at home. We are always nourished by our King who feeds us with miraculous provision and tender mercy every morning. What a Jesus we have. Go tell Him. Go, go tell it on the mountain. Go tell it on the mountain. Be His faithful witnesses. Next week we'll look and pick up again at this incredible ministry that we've been given. The judgment that's going to be coming, the persecution we will face, and the vindicating victory of the resurrection and the hope therein. Let's pray. Father God, thank You so much for Your Word. I thank You so much for the great promises that You give us. I thank You for the fullness of Scripture that allows us to interpret Scripture with Scripture. That doesn't leave us to just trying to figure it out or decipher it using newspaper headlines or, or the teachings of men, but that we can go to Your Word and see how these things align. We can test them as faithful Bereans who go to the Word and, and, and see it for ourselves. Lord, I pray that You will call us to be Your faithful witnesses in this world, no matter what we face. Your Word is clear. We will face opposition. We will face persecution. But while we are in these, this, this church age, while we are yet not at the end where You completely cut off the, the witness as a means of judgment to this world, God, we are called to proclaim knowing that Your Word does not return void, that it will be absolutely victorious where it is, that there is power in a praying people, that we are called to be praying people just as Elijah was, knowing that the Spirit of God is at work in us to give us what to say in our prayers. And so, Lord, we thank You for this reminder of what we've been empowered to do. That we weren't empowered by the Spirit to sit idly by while our world perishes but to be empowered to cast the muzzle off and to go and proclaim Your Gospel to the world that they might know King Jesus. So Lord, help us be Your faithful witnesses in the world. Your authorized witnesses. Knowing that no matter what happens to us, we will get to hear those wonderful words. Well done, good and faithful servants. That is the greatest praise we could ever receive. So let us leave what is behind, forget what is behind, and press forward to the upward prize of the calling of Christ Jesus. Let us live for Him, proclaiming to all the salvation that is found in Him alone. We thank You and we praise You. We say these things in the name of Christ. Amen.